Hello, lovelies. Before we get started, a quick just housekeeping scheduling update. So as you are probably aware, I release new episodes of the Be Impactful podcast on Mondays. As you may or may not be aware, there aren't that many Mondays um, that are available coming up. We are currently in the middle of all of the Jewish holidays. Last Monday was Rosh Hashanah. Um, then we have this Monday when you're here listening to this episode. And then for the next two Mondays, it's also going to be Jewish holidays. So I um, will not be releasing new episodes in observance of those um, holidays. And I will be back with a fantastic new episode on October 24th. So if during that time you are feeling like you need your podcast fix um, and you want to go back and listen, now is a great time to do that. There is an incredibly large back catalog. I think this is episode number 140 something or another. So there's a ton of different episodes on all sorts of different topics that are all really important um, to know about and just things that I think, you know, things that I, I felt were worth devoting an episode to for one reason or another. So feel free to go back into your podcast feed, wherever you're listening to this now, just scroll back and, um, and listen, and I'd love to hear from you what your favorite episodes are, which guests you really relate to, what you think, what you think about the show in general. We're approaching the third anniversary of the show, which is bonkers to me. And we'll talk more about that um, in late October, early November. So I'm I'm just really, really grateful for all of you here. And I wanted to make sure that you knew about that option. While you're listening to the back catalog, if you want to leave a review or a rating wherever you listen, that would mean the world to me as well. I do go and read them and they really do make my day. And if you have a friend who you think might enjoy the show, then uh, feel free to recommend them. You know, let them know where they can find me in all of these great conversations. So thank you so much. A wonderful new year to everyone who's listening. And for now, enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. Rifki Esquitson on today's show, I talk with the founder of Lynx about how her work supporting grieving children has changed since COVID. She shares what happens when a global pandemic leaves behind a lot of orphans, how Lynx adapted its division during that time, and the math and logistics of how a fundraising campaign comes together. Although it feels like much longer, I've known Sarah Rifka Cohn for a few years now, and I've had the opportunity to work quite closely with her and the staff at Lynx. What these people pull off in support of the children they service, who have all lost a parent, is incredible. This is actually the second episode I'm recording with Sarah Rifka. Our original conversation is linked in the show notes, and so much has changed since then. It's rare that I have a repeat guest, um, and it's always for a good reason. So today, um, if first of all, if you're if someone has not like heard of you before or anything, we have a whole other episode that um, that we recorded, which is like very in depth into your story and into links and and all of that. But can you give me like a three seconds? I've never met you before. What should I know about you? And then when people want to learn more about you, they can just go and look at that look at that other episode. Just scroll back wherever you're listening to this on your podcast feed. But uh, Sarifka, who are you? Oh, that's a loaded question. But I'm Sarifka Cohn and founded Zistel's Links and Shlami's Club, which is an organization that services kids and teens who lost a parent. Um, I lost my mother when I was nine years old, lost my father just a couple of years ago. And yeah, grief has been my best friend for many, many, many years. 
Yeah. And I think that's, uh, that's such a good way to like describe your experience. I became aware of legs. There was an ongoing argument um, between you and me and Rechi of myself lingerie, who initially made the first connection. We're not totally sure. I think, I think that you reached out to me and then you told Rechi about me and then you and Rechi ended up in my room. The end of the story is at a trade show, you and Rechi showed up um, at my booth and basically we became fast friends very, very quickly. I think I took your measurements at that trade show, if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah. we, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a very fun day and you were at that trade show. Um, it was, it was a modest fashion trade show, um, recruiting brands for the dress me store. Um, and for, which at that point, I'm pretty sure was only, I don't think it was a store yet. I'm pretty sure at that point it was only, um, like a self-care day at the Shabbaton. Um, and that's how I first became aware of links as like, I was, you know, you had reached out, said, you know, there's this great organization and, you know, for children and teens who have lost a parent and we're looking for brands to donate currencies and merchandise for these girls to have. And I was like, awesome. I'm in, I love this. This is fantastic. Um, and so a friendship was born <laughs> and over the years, um, um, oh, yeah. I've had the yeah. Over the years, we've had the pleasure of like working closely together, especially as the Dress Me store has grown. Um, and Lynx is a, here's the thing that I have to say about Lynx. Anyone who's listened to this podcast or, or who has known me for any length of time knows how much I value privacy and knows how much I value keeping certain things off the internet or out of the public eye. Um, and, and I have gone to pretty extensive steps to to, to keep certain aspects of my life private. And one of the first things that stood out to me about Ziesel's links in particular was the fact that in all of your fundraising and in all of your everything, with everything about your about your program, um, you never use photos of the children or of the families um, in any of in any of everything. So I'd love for you to talk to me about that decision for a little bit. What led you, because this is something that you feel very strongly about, and I know that people have given you quite a bit of pushback on this um, over the, what is it, 16 years now that you've been doing this? 17? You're good. Yeah, 16. Okay. So talk to me about that decision. What, you know, why was it so important to you to keep the kids outside of the fundraising? So it's an excellent question. Um, in a nutshell, I guess, let me give you my perspective on kids and teens who lost a parent and where I differ probably from just about anyone else. Um, because I was a kid who lost a parent and I was a pretty, by all external factors, successful kid. Meaning to say I was popular at school, popular on the block, had lots of friends, was geo, you know, ran around and had a lot of fun. Um, I never like even knew that kids who lost a parent could be viewed as like something less than or what we call in Yiddish a nebuch. I never like got this concept. It just never entered my vernacular. I had two completely different feelings at one time. Like I felt very lost, very lonely, very hurting. Um, that was totally part of my experience, but I never felt less than for that. And so conceptually, what I realized when I was working on the organization was that I had no intention that any messaging that I was putting out fundraising would differ from the messaging that I was giving the kids in person. And if I was telling them that they were 
worth their dignity, that they were awesome kids, and that they could be anything they wanted to be despite what they've been through, or maybe because of what they've been through. Um, I couldn't give a different message when I was fundraising. So this was 16 years ago, posters were all the rage and I would walk down the street after there was a death and I'd see pictures of like crying kids and this like help them not fall apart and totally or help these very sad orphans. And I'd be like sick to my stomach because this was not a message that I could align with at all from a personal level, professional level. I also felt that we were setting kids up for failure by giving them that kind of messaging of like, you can't thrive unless we intervene and we do something magical here that makes things better. So that kind of concept gave birth to what the messaging was going to be. And part of that message, I was like, you are not going to be objectified um, by my organization. I don't want kids to have to run away when I pull out my camera at events. And by now they don't because they know I'm pulling it out because I want memories the same way I want from my family's wedding. And I'm not sharing that with the world. This is, this is my family in a different sense. And I'm having a good time and hanging out with you. And I want pictures of that. But that's not because you're worried that tomorrow you're going to open up the front page. And it's like 800 orphan service this year doing blank, blank, blank. It just didn't sit well with me. So that kind of created a hashtag that started on LinkedIn called Dignity Matters because when I do something, I have a very hard time keeping quiet about it when I'm passionate. I think you and I have that in common. So understatement of the century, people. (laughs) So I got very loud about this on LinkedIn and I went on a campaign posting like even just Every time I would get these emails that drove me insane of like kids standing at an open grave of his parent. And I'm seeing pictures posted of this as part of the fundraising. And I put the word fundraising in quotes because it just sickens me. And I would post about this and post about this and post about this. And people, like you said, gave me a lot of pushback of like, girl, listen, ultimately, if the family needs money and we don't put up all these things, People don't give because there are 10 fundraising campaigns a day and then you don't get the money. So they're starving. And how was that helpful? And it was a fair argument. I'm not going to lie. It was something because they were proving it by showing me screenshots of campaigns that were not successful. And so it was actually Tova Hirschkowitz. I have to give her a lot of credit who came up with the concept of the dignity deer, which was our very Oh, it was our second crowdfunding campaign, but the first one we're not going to count was just for a trip, $10,000. But she came up with the dignity deer of like, let's prove that we could raise $100,000 in a campaign that will have zero pictures and videos of kids and teens. And I was like, you're crazy. How are we doing this? And there's a long story of how it happened. But the bottom line is that people took the dignity deer and we raised more than 100000 that year. And it was like, all of a sudden, that was the aha moment for people of like, oh, it could be done. It's a lot harder, but it could be done and it should be done. What year was that? The Dignity Dare? Um, you're terrible right now because I need to do some math, but I want to say 2018. Okay. So it's 
like you're talking about in the general context, not not only with like how orthodox fundraising evolves, but also just in the way that we all get used to re- like pictures work. I mean, I use pictures and videos to sell my clothing line and this and and pushing back against that is really a very big deal. Now, I don't need to tell you that between 2018 and 2022, um, there's been a couple of world events that may or may not have affected the work that you do. <laughs> and it wasn't until you and I were like just chatting now, you know, quickly before this interview started, you don't, listen, we all know COVID happened, right? We all know COVID happened and we hear about um, you know, whatever the the death numbers are, the toll numbers, you know, it was a big deal when the United States had half a million and then a million, and I don't even know what we're up to now. And in my brain, and this is, I guess, because you do the work that you do and I do the work that I do, it didn't occur to me until very recently that a global pandemic leaves behind a lot of orphans. And especially in the Orthodox community, we were hit very hard. and. Um, I I would love to hear how has what you do changed? You know, what what was 2020 like for you? What did that mean? And I hope I'm not triggering too much PTSD by asking that. Just a little bit. Um, so actually, I have to say something about our first podcast that we recorded. We recorded at the beginning of lockdown. And I listened to that podcast and I have to tell you that I cringe because I had no idea what was about to hit. Mm-hmm. And I listened to some of the things that I said then. And guys, if you listen to that first podcast, don't judge me. We were at the very beginning and I had no idea what I was in for. Um, we got hit, like you said, really, really, really hard. And what's what people need to realize is that while the secular world has millions of kids who lost a parent, I mean, in America right now, it's millions. Um, In an average family in the secular world, for the most part, they have smaller families. And so when you are an organization dealing with California, like I was talking to a colleague, right? So she had, let's say, seven, eight parents who passed away, and she has about seven, eight kids from that. In the Orthodox Jewish community, if it was seven kids, I can average that to at least five kids home. And that means because some of the families will have nine kids and some of the families will have three kids home, right? But that means we're looking at 35, 45 right there. So our numbers were exponentially higher. And to give people a number, um, I'll just give you is that in the initial count, so to speak, I would say from March through from March 2020 till I think we went October of 2020. That's sort of what we like. Um, I counted. We added, and I, I want to just clarify what adding means for us. And that's just again part of our policy. We don't just like notice somebody died and add their family to our list and say, "Got it. Somebody died, so now we have a right to intervene in your life and offer you services that you never wanted." Um, so when I say added, that means this is the amount of kids that actually walk through our front door, either through publications, through our hotline, through our events, basically they've signed up to receive services. There are many more kids than this that we certainly don't have. So this number is a conservative number of what's been going on. We added 397 kids and teens to our organization in those few months. Whoa. For context, how many did you have before that, like percentage-wise? 
so it's not so much about how many we had before that. And the reason I say that is because kids get married, kids exit the system, kids graduate. It's like right. an evolving number. But I'll give you the different context. For average sake, usually in a span of a month, right? Mm-hmm. Sadly, we add between 15 to 20 kids, roughly. Okay. Okay. On a bad month, it's closer to 20. On a good month, it's closer to 8 to 10. That's that's around what we're talking about. So let's say we would take the highest number. Right. Let's do that math. Okay. I just did the math, everybody. So Rivka just saw me counting on my fingers on the Zoom call that we're in. Right. So that was right. eight months that you said. March to October was eight months. And 397 right. So the kids. highest number, like if we would have been at the highest, that would have been about 150, 160 kids. Right. And so- that would have been a peak month every month. This is double literally that this averages out that 397 divided by eight months um is 49.62 children um so figure 50 basically so it's more than double what you would normally add on an right i want to stop for a second and talk about the emotional piece of that how, how are you still a functioning human like, how is any of your staff still functioning? I would imagine that that is just, I mean, we're all, I think, to a certain, different people to different levels dealing with the after effects of COVID and lockdown. And especially those of us who have experience with loss, it's a whole other, it's a whole other story. Mm-hmm. Um, but how did that affect the way that you run, not only as an organization, but emotionally? So I'm going to say is that um, during COVID, we had two problems going on. One was that there was an enormous amount of debts that were hitting people out of whack with no resources in place. And B was the helpers, the therapists, um, the interventionists, the people like ourselves, were all in the same lockdown. Right. So any sort of help that normally our families would be able to get, we were all stuck in the same situation. And for argument's sake, you know, something like Sheva, where nobody was able to visit some of these kids during the first week of mourning. And it's like, it was just creating an enormous amount of chaos that we're not used to dealing with. So there were two problems. And the reason when you, when you said about triggering PTSD, you're not kidding. I think back to some of those months where I physically, somatically in my body was carrying survival for days and days and days on end where there were days, you know, thank God, by about, I would say, June, July, August, September, October, the numbers definitely were much lower. But in March, April, May, we could be doing sometimes like three family losses in a day. Right. I have still, I, when I look at the archives, I legit at one point felt like I had separated from, I, I had totally disassociated. I was working on autopilot. There was no other way to do it because we were getting the absolute craziest, and I say craziest phone calls, um, that just like, you couldn't make sense of it if you tried. So I I definitely believe it affected me. I definitely believe that I hope that the system that we have put in place, um, whether it's that we have the clinical supervision in the office, which is imperative, is that there is a chain of command for anyone in the helping field where they have someone to turn to both for guidance and to be able to share what it is that they're holding. And then that supervisor got to have their own supervisor. So it's, it's like, there's often a chain like that. And I know for myself that the one thing I did not give up during COVID was therapy. I forced my therapist from the beginning to get right on zoom. 
I know that I have no capacity to do the work that I do objectively, professionally, without getting the self-care help. And, you know, I have people who say to me, you know, you're very public about the fact that you're in therapy and in supervision and all that. And I said, because I believe it's a standard that should be set for those in the helping fields. I don't think we have a capacity to be seen any more than another human being. And when we are hit hard and you're a first responder in some capacity, um, an emotional first responder, we owe it to the people that we service to be emotionally fit. And I don't say that we're in any way perfect human beings. I have struggles like everybody else does, but I also have a like sort of pieces in place to make sure that while I fell off a cliff, I won't lie, I didn't fall off and become so damaged that I couldn't climb back on. Meaning to say, I carried with me a lot of pain and I knew that, and I knew it was gonna take months for this pain to release itself because I didn't have the time of day or the privilege to say, okay, now we're gonna shut the phones and we're just gonna grieve what's happening here. I, I have to like give you context. I was sitting, I, I live in a tiny apartment. I mean, I'm sure there are people who live in tinier, but I live basically it's one floor, few bedrooms, all my kids were home locked down, right? And everybody was getting onto their different classrooms and every different room that existed in my house. I did therapy um, on the top floor of my building. There's like a landing where there's no apartments. I would climb up there because nobody was coming up there. That was the emergency exit to the roof. I worked in my bedroom with a hospital table that I bought that converted over my bed and that's literally how I function like when I think about the stuff that we did it was crazy um so yeah that's sort of how I kept some of my sanity although if anybody knows me and I, I say this with full disclosure I don't think myself or my staff is anywhere close to seen by other people's standards just the way we have a very dark sense of humor and it keeps us it, it it's as someone who has know, hung out with the staff who, I can I can as someone who has hung out with the staff, and when that happens, I am, I think, the only one there with two living parents when that does happen. It's, 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 it's quite, you would not believe. <laughs> no, and I, I have to tell people that, you know, sometimes it almost sounds irreverent. Like we have no problem saying crazy things, legit crazy things to each other. But if you want to talk about sanity, part of the reason is we definitely have each other's back. People are sure. extremely supportive to each other on the team. And that's also, it's a, it's a real key factor to how things work. And, you know, I've, I've been very lucky and blessed to be surrounded by such people. And I say that all the time. Yeah, it's, I can't repeat it, but trust me, it's good. Um, the, the, when you, when you think of something like COVID, right. Or when you think of something that has that huge, over, like the whole world changed everything about the world changed. How did, how did links adapt to that? You have this huge influx of kids. You have like, you can't do your regular programming. How, how were you able to, you know, you have to be nimble. Talk to me about that. What, what did that nimbleness look like for the organization, which is to a certain extent still ongoing, you know, those, those parents are still dead. Right. So I think that there's there are three things that happened for me. One is that what people don't realize is that what COVID did was also it brought up the topic of grief and loss to American public, period. Like all of a sudden, trainings that weren't in existence, conferences that weren't in existence, the topic became a real topic because it suddenly 
not dealing with a small amount of people, you're dealing with like the country. So the same thing happened in the Orthodox Jewish world. Crazy enough, while we were experiencing the COVID losses, we were suddenly finding that families were finding us from out of nowhere. Because when grief became a conversation, suddenly everybody's talking about resources, whether it's on social media, whether it's in general, we had speakers in the Orthodox Jewish world who suddenly were getting up and talking about topics of loss and saying, and oh, by the way, I lost a parent. And when I read this um, Ziesel Link's publication, or when I attended a Shlemy's Club event, I felt so understood even more than the kids. And all of a sudden people are like, what, what, what's this resource? Hey, I'm a widow. I'm a widower for seven years. I never heard of this organization, Right. So all of a sudden, what we've found in the last couple of years is we've been having our reach extend in ways that we couldn't believe. I mean, I this morning got three different emails about like initial packages that were sent out to families who are dealing with loss for many, many years. One is in Argentina. One is in Switzerland. I'm telling you. And one is in Australia. And you're like, Australia? How did these people, yeah, how did people find us, right? Well, the world has gotten a lot smaller. Right. And people have been talking about this more. So what the first thing that happened, I tell people is that it's not just that COVID added so many new families. The concept of grief becoming a conversation added a tremendous amount of growth to us. And with growth, and I think this you, you'll know as a small business owner, and, and people know this all the time, there comes a point where you realize, you know what? What I did till now was cute for a small mom and pop shop. I'm not there anymore. We've turned that corner. And I know, let's say, for instance, for you, you used to write these handwritten notes. And at some point, you're like, I'm too big for that. And I can't. I, I just can't physically get that all so out. Right? And you had to, it was so hard to give it, up. Okay. Ugh. So I want to relate to that example and say, I used to do so many things in the organization, whether it was therapy referrals, whether it was shopping with colleagues. I did it all. Right. Not because I was a one-man band, but because I loved it. When you get that many families and my role transitioned way into the fundraising world because nobody takes that job from me, right? then I realized, okay, now, wait a second. I know what I'm doing when I shop with Akala. How do I explain that to somebody else? Oh, we need to kind of break this down. And this, I know that you and I have spoken about extensively and you know a little bit about my struggles with this. Systems are my best friend and my worst enemy. They are the most helpful thing. I have systems in my head. I have a very hard time putting them down and explaining processes. So that's been a huge piece for us because we've hired a lot more. We've grown. Our dress me store, as an example, right, is servicing. I, I mean, before Paystack, I can just say that dress me went through over a thousand articles of clothing. Whoa. Yes. But you know what I did? talk about systems. I said, we need to figure out how many people are we servicing in the store and how many items of clothes are really needed? Because I'm always thinking that Brookie who runs the store is slightly insane, telling me I have another seven boxes and 14 boxes. And she is slightly boxes. insane, but that's not because she has, not because she has so many boxes. And, the, and we need to convince you to donate way. a kidney. 100%. Um, even the second kidney. For sure. <laughs> anyway she's the best. best so no absolutely she's absolutely the best and she wants a store that is the envy of profitable stores 
And she does everything she can to really create an incredible experience for every shopper that walks in there. But I said to her, bro, you have no clue of how many number of clothing you're going through. We're going to keep a Google sheet. Every time somebody leaves the store, I want you to do one thing for me. Just put the number of clothes that were taken. Number of clothes that were out. And that's when all of a sudden she was like, oh my heavens. From Purim to Pesach, it was like over a thousand items. I was like, uh-huh, that's why I wanted you to see this, which blew our brains. Anyway, but Brookie, let's say, added, because of COVID and because we have families all over, virtual appointments. Right. And the whole world went virtual, and so did we. And I was the biggest enemy to Zoom before this. And the reason I say that was I felt that you can't build connections with people. You can't really do anything. It's cute for when you don't have another choice. But let's say when we did therapy appointments, yeah, if a therapist lived in Detroit, I agreed to interview her or him via Zoom. But if anybody lived in Brooklyn, I would make them come into the office. I really would. And, and you know what? There's a piece of it I will say that I do miss because I think having a body in a room is still something very powerful. But are you kidding me? I could do like one appointment then because they would sit there we would have a conversation for at least 45 minutes when you're in person versus a zoom call can take us 15 minutes, right? We can do three therapy interviews in a day. So, you know, definitely what COVID did was expanded our services, expanded our way of reaching people, whether it's via support groups over zoom, um, whether it's like I said, the virtual shopping, I'm going to tell you another service that we offered that blew up during COVID was legally links. Mm, so tell legally me more about links, that. It, Yeah, so Legally Links is basically a brainchild of Daniel Dinesh, who came up with this in September of 2019, okay? Think about timing timing. of like, yeah, right. He was working at Goldman, he's a lawyer, and he was just saying, you know, maybe I can put my uh, professional expertise to work at helping families pro bono with any legal or financial advice that they need. Not taking them on as clients, but just like being in an advisory capacity. And I was like, okay, how many families really need this, whatever, but I'm known to be a yes person. Let's try it. Worst case scenario, we see that people don't need it. We walk away, but like, let's try it. And we had, like, I'd say we, you know, I should have my numbers better, but I would say we probably serviced five, seven families till COVID, like from September to March. It was like a slow, cute startup. And then people died really fast. And I'm going to just say a PSA. Spouses need to let spouses know where their money is. Yes. Just in general, it's a good thing. Okay. And we can have a whole separate podcast about what we dealt with when it comes to that. But there were an awful lot of men who walked out of the house still talking, got to the hospital, and two hours later were on a trach. And their spouses, after they passed away, called and said, I don't even know which bank has my mortgage and I have no idea how to pay a bill. And I don't know what these bills are that I'm getting. And I'm not even sure if they're legit. And also, by the way, we're, I don't know, we, we got envelopes, but then my husband went paperless and I don't know the passcodes and the bank doesn't want to give me the information. And, oh, and by the way, what's this thing called social security survivor benefits that I heard about? And all of a sudden, the calls were coming in in an insane rate. Daniel grew the team to, I think they're a team now of like 12 or 13. I don't know. I I can't keep up by now. But like there's dozens of them who are working on this. You're talking about people 
who are serious experts in their field. Like we have people who are working at firms, getting paid top dollar per hour and doing this pro bono where they'll fill out like paperwork that a clerk can do because they do it with expertise and they do it where they instill confidence in the men and women that they're dealing with about like, we got your back and we're not going to let anybody mess with you. And that feeling is, is key here. So anyway, and then came FEMA saying, we're going to pay for funerals of people who can prove that the person died from COVID. Now, let me just tell you something. Funerals are expensive. Dying is really expensive. People don't realize that the average funeral plus just, just everything costs, and I'm not even talking about often, this is without a burial plot, can run between nine dollars to $15,000. Okay, that's what could you possibly with, what could you possibly be doing for fifteen thousand dollars? Don't you just need okay. like a room in a box? We don't even use fancy boxes. <laughs> I don't run funeral homes, but, but when people were sending their bills, I got a sticker shock. Um, and some of them arguably were with plots included in that, but some of them were really like they were let's say eight thousand without the plot, and then another like ten thousand for the plot. So. Don't get me started. I got no clue how the breakdown is, but this is just a fact. So what I'm learning and is that you and I are in team, the wrong business. You know what? I really don't like this funeral business. I don't. Um, I always say that the biggest difference I have to, let's say, the funeral business, I also get the weddings. Right. I get fun stuff. I get pictures from my alumni of like, three of us got together at playgroup today with all the cute kids. And there's yeah. like a picture of three girls at a Shabbaton in circa 2015. And in 2022, three girls at a playgroup, three cute women at a playgroup. I don't know when they grew up with like three-year-olds. And I'm like, I love you guys. Right. Okay. So FEMA was offering to pay for these funerals. Right. And this was like probably yeah, very easy yeah, money to I get love, with that you needed no help I to love, access whatsoever. Exactly. But I also love U.S. government. Mm -hmm. Because the paperwork is very, very clear. It was done by very intelligent people who actually say the same thing that they mean and mean what they say. Mm -hmm. And when you press yes, it doesn't mean no. And if you don't know what you're doing, they, they don't just, you know, mess you over. Oh, yeah, they do. So people had no idea what to fill out. And they had no idea which paperwork needed to be included. Like, was it the invoice? Was it this? Was it that? Right. And this team threw themselves in, got onto the phone with FEMA learned what they actually need and just were doing this on repeat for people. Now, guess what happens when a family gets $15,000 check from FEMA? That widow or widower tends to tell a friend, do you know what just happened to me? Yeah. And also, by the way, when a person passed away and they're leaving a spouse who's 60, who can be cashing in on their own social security survivor, uh, on their own social security benefits, in just a few years. Do they cash in on that or do they cash in on survivor benefits? And if they cash in on survivor benefits, does that hurt them? Oh, is that not a good question that I didn't think about? Right. So when that person gets really good advice and maximizes how to get their max in social security, guess what they do? They tell friends and all of a sudden our legally linked group was just going bonkers. It was just blowing up of people sending emails and Daniel bless his soul writes 24 they, that they access they answer people 24 6 which they practically do and all I can say is that 
the the amounts of help, support, and funding that they have access is is completely mind blowing. And so you ask how we changed during COVID, the, the accessibility of all these services made people get very loud about what it is that we have to offer. And suddenly it became this piece of like, oh, what is this? I have to say also something else. A lot of families are very afraid to join in the beginning. Like, I don't know if we need your events. I don't know if we need your services, whatever it is, but legally links. Yeah, that, that I could use help with. We have found that it's an interesting entry point for families because when they have that amazing experience and they realize that we really are there, we really want to lean in and give you the best experience, then all of a sudden they realize they can trust the other divisions. Right. And so there's an entry point from there as well. And the right. same is true for Dress Me. Yeah, I hear that also. I, I definitely hear that. And I think that that also speaks to the organization as a whole in that, hmm. Let me think of a politically correct way to say this or a kind way to say this. I think that there are some people who enjoy helping because it makes them feel great. And I think that there are some people who are in like tzedakah type roles or who enjoy being a big macher and I'm going to help all the widows and the orphans. And well, I can't speak to motivations of anybody in the links office or anything like that. I can't say that from what I've hung out with and met and, and to a certain extent worked with everyone there. There is not an ounce of ego involved in, in everything. And I think that like, particularly like you're saying with the legally links and with the dress me and like the, the things that like links is not getting anything from that. It's purely just to help these families that really comes through. Um, just a quick note on legally links. We actually had Etty circus on the show. Um, you were kind, you were kind enough to connect me to her. Cause I wanted, I had gotten a lot of requests to do an episode on, on finances and on from finances in particular. And I only have women on the show and, and it was difficult to find a woman in that who could speak specifically to that. Etty is knowledgeable. She's kind. She is gentle and also very realistic about what needs to happen in order to get something, you know, in order to get something in line. And and, to, and if, if she is indicative of the team, which I'm sure that she is, and you can go back and listen to her episode, um, there's actually, it's a two-part episode, um, then, then, I'm, then I'm sure that that came through with the organization. With all of this, this influx that happens, with like the growing of the different divisions and the, and, and the growing of the Dress Me store and the growing of all the services that you offer and this huge influx of the amount of children that you are serving, um, let's call a spade a spade, all of that costs money. And all of that costs money and all of that money needs to be raised. And as we are talking right now, we are at the tail end of the annual crowdfunding campaign that Ziesel's Links and Schleimies Club does. And I, I, just because I'm a sucker for logistics, I'd love to know how one of these things works. How, like, <laughs> how, so this is my boring logistics questions, everybody. Stay, hang tight. Um, how does- It's not boring. I'll spoiler alert. It's not boring. Oh, like, I love this stuff. You know, I love this stuff. How does something, well, you're also, you're raising more money than you ever have before. So uh, I'm stressed, but that's a different story. Um, how, how do you go about, but how like what how does i mean this is a huge amount of money that is being raised um like we said before not using any of like the traditional clickbaity um you know you have to give here otherwise these orphans will starve type um of advertising how do you go about setting up something like this okay here's here's the fun stuff so just spoiler alert um a few years ago when i started actually my linkedin profile 
which is the fun if anybody wants to learn about what nonprofit day-to-day life is like. I started a hashtag called Tales of a Leader and I said, nobody can stop me. I run my own organization. I can tell it like it is and I'm going to tell everybody what it's really like to run a nonprofit. And I kind of feel the same way right now. I'm like, you know, everybody sees these crowdfunding campaigns and there's like this question mark of like, how does it work? And, you know, before I started running these crowdfunding campaigns, and this is our fourth year of like a real campaign, although it's our fifth crowdfunding campaign. Anyway, um, so I thought that you sprinkle some fairy dust in somebody's head and the money starts raining in because that's what it looks like when you watch somebody's campaign and all of a sudden you're like, $18, oh my gosh, and then they got a, a $5,000 and, and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden it's like magical and then they go into this bonus round and it's like- Build it and they will come. Oh, wow. Okay. So, and then I get always these calls from people who are starting in these crowdfunding campaigns or sometimes have done unsuccessful ones and they're like, this is so sad. Why does it work for everybody else and it doesn't work for me? So let me walk you backwards for a second. The first question is, what's a realistic goal? And there's an actual numbers game to this that I'm going to tell people. Basically, there is a science that in the from world, and this is a, a science that I've learned from the guru who I consider the guru in this world, which is Yessi Greenwald, who runs the platform, raise it with me. I'm not with me. He runs the platform, raise it, and he helps me with my campaigns. So he's taught me basically, this is the science. He'll make me take, let's, let's for the fun of it, pull out a calculator right now because I'm not good at math and I need help. Okay. So calculator out. suppose, okay. So suppose an organization wants to raise a hundred thousand dollars. Okay. The from world. And again, obviously it ranges and stuff like that, has an average donation of $75. Okay, okay. that's, that's now, the reason. Fair. The reason why that's an average is because obviously you're going to get the larger donations and you're going to get a lot of 18s and 36s and 54s and $5 and whatever it is. And I'm the first one to say, by the way, people, a dollar, you have no idea how far that goes. So like, don't ever think that an amount you give doesn't add up. It really, really, really does. Anyway, so now I want you to divide $100,000 divided by 75. What number are you getting? You get $1,333 and 33 people. And a third of a people. You basically get about a little bit over 1,300 people. Good. That means that in order for you to raise 100,000 without major miracles or massive matching or stuff like that, you're going to need to get 1,300 people to give to your campaign. Okay. 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 Now, how are you getting 1,300 people? Generally, campaigns are broken down in razor pages. That means the same way you, Ripke, have taken a razor page. Other people, thank you very much, other people take razor pages, right? Now, how many does an average person get to give to their page? That is a very big variable in different um, campaigns. There are campaigns where people get hundreds of donations, and there are campaigns where people get 10 donations. I like to divide it by 25. I say 25 is a good number. 25 people give to your page. So, Ricky, go ahead and do 1,300 divided by 25, or that 1,330, whatever you got. Okay, so 1,300, a little bit over 1,300 people divided by 25 people per page. So the number that I got, which is 53 and a third pages that you need. Exactly. So now I know that a couple months before this campaign, I need to start recruiting 54 raisers. And using this math, again, obviously, there's the God factor, which is huge, and every year I see it. Um, but I'm talking about the logistical 
efforts that need to be put in to open it up to God's miracles. You got to actually buy that lottery ticket if you want to win the lottery ticket, right? The lottery. Right. So the same concept here is I would need to have 54 raisers who bring in an average of 25 donations. Average donations of those are 75. Do the math. You're probably going to be able to hit that 100. Here's where the trouble is. Many organizations don't do this math and therefore are not recruiting enough raisers oh. and are counting on their raisers now. Imagine if I had only recruited now 20 raisers for this campaign. So one of two things is going to happen. Either I'm going to get really mad at my raisers because I expected them somehow bring in 50, 60 people to their page. Right. So if you if we're using that same example of $100,000 and we divide it by right. this low number of 20 raisers, that's $5,000 per raisers. That's a stretch for most people. I didn't take a $5,000 page. I took a $2,000 right. page. You know, right. like that's... So exactly. Yeah. And, and here's, here's the interesting part, right? So are people obviously who can do larger targets and, and they're comfortable with it. And, and there are people who can do smaller targets. Here's the thing about me personally. I've taken pages, whether it's for my son's school. I don't take pages often, obviously, because I need to fundraise for my own um, organization. But I have gone on different situations, mostly, almost exclusively for my kid's school. Um, and what I've learned is that I don't do well with target numbers. I don't do well pressuring myself into raising whatever it is, 2,500 that they give me as a minimum to raise. Now, let me tell you something. There have been times where I've blown that out of the water and whatever target they gave me, I raised more than that. There have been times that I can hit it and it doesn't feel good not to hit that number. And it's so because I like my, right. And because I like my raisers to feel good about the work that they're doing and to know that they're valued, here's the thing. I leave it open. If a target feels right for you and for many of my raisers, it does, pick whatever target number feels right for you. You know, look, you did the thousand last year and this year, 2000 felt right for you. That's, that's amazing. Right. And then somebody else will say is that I feel I can start with five, three. And then there are people who say, I don't want a number. I do not want a number attached to it. I will raise whatever I raise. And I say to organizations all the time, to me, that's a no brainer. They're raising whatever they can raise. That's amazing. I'd rather get hundreds of raisers than getting, um, you know, 20 raisers who can't meet their goals. So, right. And I also, I have to speak, speaking to this from the, from the razor perspective, I very much appreciated this aspect that you don't need to have a certain number because, um, I was terrified that I, I mean, listen, it's embarrassing to not reach your goal, especially like someone like me, who's somewhat of a public figure. And I know that there are other pages that also take, um, you know, there are other businesses that also take pages for like, and like, there's no way in a million years that I'm ever going to raise as much as, as she returned from Swaddleby. And I'm so thrilled to see her do it. But like, I, I want to at least make my little pot. Like I want to set my little thing and like, and know that I can work it. And the fact, and like last year, I was like, you know what? I feel like I could hit a thousand. I feel like I could do that. And that'll make sense to do. And, and based, and like, I made the decision this year on 2000 based on the amount of time that it took to raise a thousand last year. I was like, oh, okay. In the span of the week that also that felt doable. And that was very, it just made it feel that much more approachable and also just kind of kinder, you know, it was, it, yeah. it just, it made it, it made the whole experience simpler. So I want to, say something to that kinder piece. And I think that's another piece. There, there are two elements to um, the, how different campaigns are run. One of the things is that on the back end, um, people sometimes will create pages for raisers. Like let's say an organization recruits, this happens a lot with larger organizations or a large yeshiva or a school. They'll just 
set up automatically pages from like a million people. As the campaign goes, and I know I'm, I'm a Yenta who goes to different campaigns to look at what's happening because to learn, right? Oh, I, I do this so for purely Yentish purposes, go but sure, yes, it is to learn. Yeah, definitely. So I will sort, <laughs> I will sort donations in all different ways. I will look at the numbers. I will divide these things and how many pages they have. And I, I, I hack these numbers all the time because I need to learn. Anyway, one of the things that I personally hate is that when I go on and I see, oh my gosh, they got 400 people to take razor pages. That's a lot of people. And then I go on and I sort it by how low to high, how are people's pages doing? And the first 200 are at zero. I'm like, you didn't get 400 razors. You got 200 razors and right. 400 you and 200 of them you set up who never came through. Now, let me say something. I had three, I think three pages last year that were empty the entire campaign. These were people who thought they could do it. One of them actually ended up getting really sick during the campaign and couldn't come through. But the two others, let's say, they ghosted in a certain sense during the campaign. I left those pages up because I always figure you never know last second the person may come and may say they want to do it. But for the most part, I don't set up people's pages. People set them up themselves. That means they get to write whatever they want to write in connection. I obviously give people like samplers of stuff that they could use so that, you know, people who are very, very afraid of writing anything should have the tools to help them. But I want this to be in the person's voice. I hate opening a page that I am raising on that has a text here that doesn't sound like me. I would never talk to people this way. I'd never say, I need you and you must give to my page and whatever other thing. You know what? It works for some people and that's the way they want to set up their page. Go ahead. But what I prefer is a lot of my raisers have either had personal experience with the organization, a personal connection within their life, or any reason that's motivated them to take a page. I want them to share that with their friends. Why are you doing this? What's your why? Because that why may be the attraction here. So kind of, I like all that. I also have created, and, and this go, going back to logistics, there's gotta be a way to share with people what's happening during, during their campaign. And uh, so I create broadcast groups where I share with my razors and you know that, you know, what's happening. And I also give raisers motivation. I'm like, if we raise another 23.50, we hit 50%, right? right? And to do that, because we have X amount of raisers, if each person raises another $72, we can do that. And all of a sudden you find people like are like, oh, that's, that's not hard. And all of a sudden you have 100 raisers doing $72 and you blow through that goal like that. So, right. you know, I'm... Look, I could have been a party motivator for fun because I love doing that kind of stuff. And so the party motivator comes out during these campaigns. I won't lie, do it in whatever. I need to do it in a way that works for me, which is much more low key, much more just an appreciative, I think a kind way of doing it, hopefully. And just the way that I'm very lucky and I'm very blessed is that many of my raisers come back every year and they bring friends because it's something that's been a nice experience for them. And they felt good about being able to blow a goal and they know how much they've benefited and us. And it's, it's just been an incredible experience. But by the way, crowdfunding campaigns um, raise part of the budget. Our budget right now is about 
our total annual budget. I'm almost scared to say it out loud because if I say it, it's like even scarier, but it's about 2.8 million. That's a lot of dollars. Right. So no crowdfunding campaign right now is doing that for me, but the crowdfunding campaign infuses us with a huge amount to get us started. And then the other ways that we raise money is through private donations, parlor meetings in people's homes. Yep. If you're ready to do that, I'd love to have a chat with you. But um, I don't mean you, Rufti. I mean, anyone who's listening. I can, and, I can barely um, fit the people who live in my apartment in my apartment. So you're welcome to come over anytime you want. Right. But it's <laughs> a party's exactly. not happening. So, there. you know, that, that, that kind of stuff. Um, so we, we definitely don't put all our eggs in one basket. That would be pretty stupid. But the crowdfunding for sure is a way that just kind of gives that extra infusion and that big jump start. Yeah, I yeah, for sure. It's a, you know, 2.8 is a big number, but that's a, it's, it, you know, the, what you're raising in the crowdfunding campaign is, is a nice chunk of that. Yeah. So the campaign is happening on Raise It. What I'm going to do is um, because uh, I want to make sure that I hit my goal, um, I am putting in the show notes the link to my raising page. Um, and the way that I'm working it is the same way that I worked it last year is that you can donate any amount. It can be as little as a dollar, as much as the average of 75 that we just learned, or um, any amount that you'd like to go above that. Um, once we hit the goal, which is $2,000 this year, um, then I'm going to auction off a dress and you can address or any piece from the line. Um, you know, the winner can choose whatever they'd want. So in order to enter to um, into this giveaway to win, all you have to do is donate any amount um, on um, on my Raise It page, which is linked in the show notes. You can also find it um, linked um, in my Instagram and and all over there. And if if you're if you're listening to what Links does, and you appreciate the fact that they exist, which I know that I certainly do. And if you appreciate the fact that you are not someone who needs their services, then this is a great way to show that appreciation and uh, put a little good karma out into the universe. So um, definitely do go and contribute to that campaign. Um, Sarifka, what, what is something that you wish people knew about the experience of losing a parent or of supporting someone who lost a parent or who lost a, a you know, let's say a, a young mother or father with a spouse, like what is something, if you could leave everyone with like one message about that whole experience, what would you say that is? Okay. So I think it's that grief doesn't have an end date. Um, and I know I say this a lot on Instagram, but I, I think this is, this is a truth that people forget. And so you know, we're, we're now before Yom Kippur, but you're talking about Yom Kippur, we say Yisker. And there are kids who are five years down the road who still go into shul and still have a hard time with that. Or there are people who have a challenge. There are women who lost a spouse who'd like to have their own sukkah, but have a challenge with building it. And like one of them said to me, she goes, year one, year two, year three, everybody helped me. But after that, apparently my husband came back. <laughs> right? Um, so... The idea basically is, and I do a lot of this in the education that I do on my Instagram page, um, which is just a lot of like, just recognizing is first of all, mitigating the shame of if there's anybody listening to this who lost a parent when they were kids or teens, or this is years back, or even if you were an adult and this is years later, um, just know that it's normal to experience different waves of grief at 
different points in your life and stuff like that. And it, it, there's nothing to be embarrassed of. This is actually how normal grief works. It doesn't have this cute little timeline that says end date and then we're done. Um, and if anybody else here has somebody in their life who lost a parent or stuff like that, just realize that this grief doesn't go away. And you want to just continuously lean in and be there for a person in a way that is sustainable for you. So for some people that's saying, I'm going to Costco, need anything from the store? And for some people, it's saying, you know, I can host Friday nights or some person saying, you know, whatever it is that you can offer, it doesn't have to be financial and it doesn't have to be an everlasting commitment. I'm probably the enemy of the word I can always or feel free to always call me. I like avoid those words like the plague because I think that none of us are available always. I mean, we just can't be. So just being there for people and really with zero judgment, realizing that there's no end date and just trying to do the best you can to be there for someone as long as it takes. Yes, I, that definitely applies to, to a lot of different life situations. If somebody wants to learn more about you or about Lynx, where can they go? So they can go to lynxfamily.org or they can find us on Instagram at lynx underscore shiny club. And if they want to call the office for any help, it's 718-305-6080. Okay. Um, one last question I'll ask you, even though you've already answered it, but I'm, I'm so interested to see how people's responses to this involve, um, evolve, you know, over multiple visits. What does it mean to you to make an impact? You know, it's very interesting is that I think it changes for me every day. Um, but for me to make an impact is to continuously revisit what is it that people need and try to fill that need with something new and different. We're always creating something new and different. The worst words in my office apparently is I have an idea. Um, and yes, because I have a lot of ideas and I like to be impactful um, in a way that is relevant right now. And so we've closed certain programs that are no longer relevant and open new ones that are better and different so that we can better serve people and actually make an impact where it matters. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on today, Sarah Rifko. Good luck with the campaign. I cannot wait to see you meet your goal. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Sarah Rifko or donate to the campaign, the links are in the show notes. On last week's episode, I spoke with Nureen Siegel, a writer and scholar about radical feminism, orthodoxy, and anti-Semitism. Listen to it wherever you're hearing this one. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of impact fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 16 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant-parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Squits. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.